and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I join historian Dr. Kwong Chi Man at Baptist University to learn about a new interactive map of the Battle of Hong Kong. It's an extraordinary feat. You can take your mouse and watch a minute-by-minute troop movement or learn about some of the civilians and soldiers caught up in the Japanese military invasion in December 1941. In the next two programmes, Kwong Chi Man talks me through the Battle of Hong Kong 1941, a spatial history project. It's incredibly interesting when you try to explore the many pillboxes that still exist in Hong Kong. And in fact, all of them are known by the public. And some people have already done very systematic research on it. But when you actually visit one or two of these pillboxes, you are still struck by the extensiveness of the works of preparations for war by the British in the interwar period. So it's very interesting to see all the small details that still exist. All of these pillboxes are stripped of its equipment, of course, and, and most of them are blown up by the engineers after the Second World War because of various reasons. But one or two of them are still almost like fully intact. Some of them are on Hong Kong Island, some of them are on Kowloon. So, for example, when we visited one of the more intact pillbox near the Kowloon Reservoir, the PP315, you were struck by the thoroughness of the construction. Is uh, the, the quality of work was very good. And after 80 plus years, it's still very intact. You don't see many cracks on the walls, and you can still see. Of course, the, the the metal parts are rusted, of course, but some of the metal parts are still there. You can see actually in that pillbox, we saw the Japanese words on the walls. There was an artillery unit that went past the pillbox. Probably they they stayed in the pillbox for for some time, and some of the soldiers actually wrote something on the wall saying that the comrades from Aichi Prefecture let's carry on. So they have the date, they have the unit, and we later found that particular artillery unit was marching along that route. So it's very interesting to, to see relics like this. And, and you have to protect it, because otherwise it could be gone. But uh, this particular uh, writing is good, because it's, it's crafted by bayonets. So it would stay longer. But some of those are written by, for example, by ink, could go at any moment. So because after so many years... How many, I mean, just as a ballpark figure, how many pillboxes do we still have in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, there were around 200 pillboxes built on the Kowloon side and on Hong Kong side. Nowadays, my rough estimation, actually we can do a very precise calculation here, but my impression is that around 70 of them could still be visited. Mm. Yeah, And then the gin drink is lying including on Hong Kong Island. Around on the Jinjinkas line, there might be around 40 of them could be visited fairly easily. Some of them actually still exist, but they are in, they, they are in the location where it's very difficult to reach. Mm. For example, near, near, uh, you have to climb up a bit and, and it might be dangerous to reach those pillboxes. But on the other hand, on the Hong Kong Island side, some of them are actually very, very easy to find. For example, those three pillboxes near the, the Aberdeen Reservoir. So they are basically right next to the barbecue sites. But there are without any explanation panels or, or markers showing the history. It's just there. 
It's a shame, isn't it? I mean, some of these structures, as you say, still exist, so it would be great to mark them out in the country parks or wherever you come across them. I mean, along through the work of Tim Coe or Co Tim Kang and uh, Tony Bannum back in 2005, along the Wong Nai Chung Gap Trail or that area, so it was the artery coming through the middle of uh, Hong Kong Island, really, in a very key area. Now that has some panels, so you can uh, track the history there. But, yeah, we really do need to improve how we mark it here, of course, in the 80th year since the invasion of Hong Kong in December 1941. In front of me, in your office, we've got the Battle of Hong Kong Spatial History Project. This is an interactive website map that you can access and I'll be giving the details both at the end of the programme and also on my Facebook page. And it's so well worth a look. It's got several layers in the sense of it's, it can tell you about personalities who were part of the war on all sides and uh, who fought in various parts and you can track them as the invasion continues um, but it's all the military movement and, and what do you do just put your mouse on one bit yeah, you, when you click on anything on the map it shows additional information or links to other information as well for example if you click on a particular unit the history of that unit will show up and and the commander's name and so on more and sometimes it, there will, will be links to the equipment that unit used or the uh, military structures that are related to that particular unit or some people's story who served in that particular unit or was in some way related to that unit as well. So it was organized into multiple layers so that are grouped in several categories. For example, you have different map layers so you can change the base map you look at at the screen. For example, you can use a selected British military map that was in the 1930s and 1940s. You can see like a Japanese layer. You can select the clean layer that is the 2021 Google map base and you can look at uh, different unit locations and then you can look at the uh, different military structures for example coastal gun batteries AA gun batteries search lights command headquarters in fact when you walk along the, the the country parks in Hong Kong especially on Hong Kong islands there are so many shelters concrete builds house like structures they look like houses they look like storerooms in fact and and without windows and so on some of them with the window, but the metal parts are gone. So when we walk past those things, if you do not have any explanations and so on, you, you just don't know what they are. Now, you're a young professor in your 30s. Why is this of interest to you? I was not extremely into the military history of Hong Kong at the beginning. I started out as a historian that is focused on the civil wars in China in the 1920s the warlord period. So I was very into the anything that are related to the interwar period. So anything... The interwar period between the First and Second yeah. World Wars. Yeah, between, between the two world wars, the, the changes in, in the military. So for example, the new weapons, tanks, planes and so on. So I was, when I was oh, young... So you're, so you're a machine geek? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it was a more like a machine geek uh, type who was very into warships, built models, military uh, models and tanks and, and warships. And as you can see in my office, there are some tanks. <laughs> There's a British oh, tank yes. right, there. right behind yeah. us and a battleship. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. And as you can also see, it's focused on the British <laughs> in the military because somehow I find them better looking than others. I don't know. It's kind of taste thing. <laughs> anyway, so when I was uh, studying my uh, PhD in 
back in the UK. So I, I focused on the 1920s. And then later on, when I got back to Hong Kong, I, I was given an assignment to write uh, something about the new territories, the history of the new territories, about the history of Hong Yikok. So Hong Yikok, meaning the rural... Uh, rural council. Yes. Yeah, the rural So council. not to do with war at all? No. And then I went to the archives in Hong Kong, and then I, I gradually realised, why don't I just work on the military history of Hong Kong since there are so many archival sources? And of course, there are so many people who has done stellar work on this. You have, you have Tim Coe, you have Tony Benham, you have Philip Cracknell, and you have David Bellis. So at that time, they, they all have already published something about the Battle of Hong Kong. And of course, uh, some of them are very extensive studies on it. So I, I also started out and I was very lucky to bump into Japanese uh, documents about the battle. So that's kind of related to my previous works on the Chinese warlords. So when I was doing the warlord studies, I relied mainly on the Japanese archival sources. So that's of interest to me because I found also that I feel that the story that doesn't get told or should be told much, much more is from the Japanese perspective. So Japanese journalists who were travelling with the military who came here, but also probably personal accounts from uh, any soldiers. Now, admittedly, I think, as far as I understand it, most of the Japanese military were moved out of here um, shortly afterwards and they went to Guadalcanal. So in terms of the Japanese military, I'm just thinking whether there would be diary accounts or memoirs. I think most of the soldiers don't make it through the war. In fact, yes, many die. Those who had participated in the battle, many of them were killed during the battles in the South Pacific. But some survived, and we were very lucky to have found all the regimental histories of the units that had participated in the battle, the free infantry regiments, the artillery regiments, and, and later on we found more and more. And very recently, in fact two weeks ago, we, we found a very interesting album of a Japanese artillery, probably an officer or a soldier, who was attached with an artillery brigade that attacked Hong Kong. So that guy took many pictures of Hong Kong with the Japanese troops. The cover of that album was gone, so because uh, the soldier apparently wanted to delete any uh, personal information related to to the unit or to the battles that unit had fought. But uh, we can trace the the roots of the unit where the unit moved from one place to another. So it started out from Manchuria, and then it garrisoned in Guangdong and Shenzhen, and then it participated in the Battle of Hong Kong, and later on it moved on to the Philippines. So we, we, we can immediately tell which unit it is. And then we bought it from Japan through an online auction site, and we opened the album and found, oh good, it's all Hong Kong. <laughs> Yeah. And and Man pictures in Manila, pictures of Harbin late 1930s and early 1940s. So it, some of them are really invaluable. For example, we we now finally have a photograph of a pillbox on the Jinjinkas line before it was demolished by the British in the 1950s and 1960s. It looked so much different from what we can see now. So it really tells a lot about how much we don't know. So the good thing of working on this kind of project is the more you dig in, the mm. more you realise how much you don't know, yeah. which is good. <laughs> yeah. So this is the album? Yes, it is. So you can see the, the pictures taken. These are taken right after the Japanese forces had captured Hong Kong. So these are really in incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah, useful. And, and right from a soldier 
who was here. So I'm talking with Dr. Kwong Chi Man, Associate Professor of History at Baptist University. And over the next couple of programmes, we're talking about a wonderful project called the Battle of Hong Kong 1941 Spatial History Project. This is an interactive map. Do go and have a look. I'll provide the details at the end of the programme on how you can access this. But it has... World War II structures from the invasion of Hong Kong. A lot of these are built in the interwar period. We've got personalities that were involved. So these can be military, civil. So they're dotted all over Kowloon, Hong Kong Island and the New Territory. So you've got the event. So you can do literally not just a daily, but it's actually an hourly, minutely. Um, you just click, 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 go through. You'll have both old photographs, photos, aerial photos of the bombings, but also photos that have been taken by Kwong Chi Man and some of his colleagues in more recent times. But it's interesting looking at this interactive map. I mean, there's quite a lot now, fortunately, that has been written uh, about uh, the Battle of Hong Kong. Tony Bannum's Not the Slightest Chance is a real standout because that actually documents, you know, that again is a blow-by-blow throughout. But what do you think is the advantage of an interactive map like this? First, it's really great to have many good works in the field before we started this project. And in fact, Tony is one of the investigators of the project. So he's our, basically our partner. And of course, many also contributed. David Bellis, Philip Pratno, and so on, Tim Coe. The, the best part of this map, I, I would say, is the, the ability to really show the interactions between events that took place at the same time, at, at, but at different places. So, for example, there there were fightings in, in Causeway Bay area, there were fightings in Wong Lai Chung Gap, there were fighting in Dai Tam, they were fighting in, in Nian uh, Repulse Bay Hotel. So these events were somehow related, but they took place in geographically separate space. But when I was writing Eastern Fortress, for example, or, or the Chinese works related to this topic, we, we have to treat it as separate events. And when we try to write, we can't say uh, in this sentence we talk about the Battle of Wang Chong Cap, and the next sentence we bring the readers to Dai Tam. We can't do it. It would be very confusing. So what an interactive map can do is to really show an overview of the events so that the viewers can really understand the possible interrelations between all these events. For example, you have a British counterattack from the Stanley Peninsula after the Japanese had landed. So when in textual accounts, for example, in the war diaries or in subsequent studies, we have to write the, the chronicles, write a narrative about the counterattack. It's okay. But an interactive map can show the Japanese reactions to it. At the same time, the situation in Wang Lai Chong Gap, the situation in, in Causeway Bay area. So after putting all these events on the map and the viewers can view the whole uh, situation at the same time, you can see the Japanese commanders actually panicked and sent all his reserves towards the Sandy Peninsula for no good reason. In fact, they could simply push towards the Admiralty area a modern-day Admiralty area and forced the British commander, Moppy, General Moppy, to surrender. So they didn't have to go to Stanley? Simply they did not have to, because they have already left some reserve troops in the Daitam area to block the British advance. So all they could do was to put every, uh, throw everything towards the central direction and force Moppy to surrender his garrison. 
it's interesting when I look at the map because I mean, I'm, I'm not a military expert at all. But you, you're watching, you know, these soldiers, the artillery, the various, oh, you can see the planes, you can see the ships as well, all of these movements going on. And what is interesting that I'm discovering today is just, you know, of course, you're in the middle of, uh, you're trying to strategize these, these generals on all sides, all the senior brass are trying to strategize as they're going along uh, in a changing situation but some of the mistakes that are made both on the the side of the the hong kong defense but also as you say on on the japanese side so it isn't just a clean sweep down yes indeed so even the japanese commander were not very happy about their troops uh, performance after the battle but this map can also show one very important dimension in any war which is war is chaotic so all these things we can see from a map is after years of collecting data and they're not 100% reliable because after all, these are based on after action reports of individual units. And there are of course gaps in the knowledge. There are of course inaccuracies. So sometimes we have to cross check different sources to decide where should we put this particular unit symbol on this particular spot at this particular time. So we are not claiming it's in God's view of events where we can tell everything about the battle. So one thing the map can show is actually how chaotic the situation was. So sometimes opportunities were missed, sometimes poor decisions were made, but at the same time, we are actually reminding ourselves of the impossibility to have a perfect view of the events, even if modern technology nowadays and communication technology, satellites and so on, commanders on the field are still facing a chaotic situation. So this is one of the major message of this spatial history project is to stress on the fact that even though we can somehow visualize the general course of the events, we cannot be 100% sure of the accuracy of everything. We, we should not claim it. So you had hikers, authors? Yeah, you have explorers. In fact, like, uh, for example, uh, Craig Mitchell, who, who really helped a lot uh, because when we try to locate, uh, put down the, the, the symbols on the map, the unit symbols on the map, so sometimes it's still kind of different from the actual a situation on the ground. So although we, we of course uh, had been to most if not all of the structures, but sometimes the battlefields contains no structure. For example, the hills uh, north of Stanley Peninsula. There were not many structures around, for example, Sugarloaf, Stanley Mode, all these hills. We had been there, but sometimes we really have to be brought up by experts like Craig Mitchell who can really tell us what would be the more likely location of the uh, unit. Because I mean, I know Craig found a plane, didn't he? Or... Yes, indeed. That is why he's thoroughly familiar with the ground. And when we compare with his knowledge with, for example, the maps drawn by the Japanese, he can immediately tell whether that particular place is a suitable location for the unit of that size. For example, you, you can't bring up a, a full company of 120 men along a cliff. So are you finding, though, that, I mean, history is always on the move in a way. I mean, it depends on who's written it. You know, you have all of these aspects. So history is never quite history. But are you finding, as you were trogging along with these expert hikers and others, that you're finding that sometimes with the accuracy of these military reports, it's like, yeah, that wouldn't have quite happened here. It might have happened 100 yards down the lane or... That is exactly the case. That is exactly the case. Sometimes uh, the accounts are not really that reliable when, when we are on the ground. And people were stressed and memory. 
Yes, and in fact, you, of course, sometimes you have exaggeration of the results, for, especially in the Japanese accounts when they, when they say they pushed further, 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 and further. In fact, they actually were not that far. <laughs> they didn't go that far. But, but of course, it's very difficult to measure these kind of things. What in, kind of discoveries did you make doing this? We have many. For example, uh, one of the particularly interesting parts of this project is to link up the individual's experience with the events surrounding them and the structures surrounding them. One, one, one particular case is that one of the Canadian accounts we included in the story complains of the flimsiness of the shelter he stayed in during the Battle of Hong Kong. He stayed in one of the shelters in Wong Lai Chong Gap and he said it was uh, made of sand, it's not very reliable, it must be because of corruption and so on. So. Oh, interesting. He didn't think he was safe. So in, a, a tofu, a, yeah, a, a tofu pillbox. Yeah. But, but the shelter is still there. Yeah. <laughs> that, that particular shelter he mentioned still there, very intact. So, so it's a, it's a really common thing. So we have to separate the emotional parts yeah, yeah. of the accounts with other historical sources. We we can't say it's facts. Yeah, we can't say that this is fact. It's not fact. We, we can't do it because it's still very confusing. But I think the historian's job is to show the messiness it was, the different reaction of the people towards the events and the diversity of experience. And that is why when we talk about the stories, when we have the story layers, we deliberately added many non-military personnel in it. We had several children, Chinese or Eurasian or foreign expatriate children, and we had male and female, of course. And one particular entry is called uh, the Angels of Wan Chai. And, and I actually explained in the text, saying that the reason we included that in this story... The Angels of Wan Chai. The angels of Wan Chai were, many of them were sex workers, and all of them were uh, partners or girlfriends or in different forms of relationships with the British servicemen of the free services in Hong Kong before the war. So towards the end of the battle, when the British garrison was pushed towards the Wan Chai area, in some of the soldiers' accounts, they mentioned the, the girls at, at Wan Chai, the pub bar girls, actually went out and helped them. They knew before the war, of course, they were the customers and so on. They were or friends or partners in different forms of relationships. And towards the end of the battle, when the British were clearly losing, they still came out and helped the British soldiers. And some of them actually tried to help those captured British soldiers when they were in Sam Shepo in the prisoners of war camp. And of course, many died in the process. And you have in many soldiers, I can talk about how these women sacrificed for them try to bring in food, being humiliated by the Japanese guards, and so on. So we added an entry on the map, we placed that uh, symbol in Wan Chai, as a reminder of the fact that even though with much research and primary sources on different sides, there are still people who cannot tell their stories. This is very important, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you have, of course, very detailed combat accounts which gives you almost a false sense of clarity. But in fact, in, in a historical event, especially in a war, it's chaotic, isn't it? So, so we leave this space more like as a reminder to tell the people that, yes, on the one hand, we can try to make it clear. But on the other hand, we have to remember it's a chaotic thing. You should not be too confident 
of the whole thing. Yeah. Now, the structures that you, I mean, if you, one of the things when you look at this interactive map, so this is the Battle of Hong Kong, 1941 Spatial History Project. I mean, you look right up in the, in the New Territories and you, you'll see a personality and that's Graham Hayward. And Graham Hayward would later become the director of Hong Kong Observatory. And he, along with Leonard Starbuck, are the first two prisoners of war in the Pacific region. And they were just out trying to collect some observatory equipment up in the New Territories. And in fact, the Graham Haywood diaries were, were published by Blacksmith Book, so you can have a look at his story. So really, as you go through this interactive map, this interactive map will not only provide you with a comprehensive look at the Battle of Hong Kong, but it will also probably lead to other, other research that you can go off and do. What I like is when you look at, uh, like, Graham Haywood, it will give, you click on Graham Haywood and um, there's a, a bio of him where he was what he was doing and it's quick and easy read and then suggestions on further reading so with Graham Haywood it's called It Won't Be Long Now The Diary of a Hong Kong Prisoner of War and that was published in 2015 but that's just Graham Haywood up in the north there and uh, I mean once you get down further south of Hong Kong Island of course is very comprehensive but there are all sorts of nationalities so you've got Chinese Japanese and Indian and uh, French, yeah, you name it. So, I mean, basically, and the idea is that you're just going to gradually build on this. Yeah, we plan to, because well, at that time, Hong Kong, you have 1.5 million in Hong Kong, civilians only, and you have around 50,000 surface personnel on both sides trying to fight it out. And that is why the, the number of stories is almost unlimited. So we are planning to add 20 more stories each season just to enrich uh, this almost like a virtual museum uh, to exhibit the diversity of human experience during a very, very chaotic historical event. So we, we in fact, we welcome the public, everyone, the descendants and so on, any interested parties to send us stories. In fact, one of the great source uh, of the stories are the uh, Alumni Association of the Secondary Schools in Hong Kong. For example, Lhasa gave us stories, Yinghua gave us stories, because they had, they had their alumni who had fought in the battle. Yeah. For me, what I'd love to know much, much more about is the Hong Kong Chinese civilian story here. Um, so the ordinary people, really, who weren't military, but just trying to get through this awful situation for three years and eight months. But you also have famous names here, Emily Hahn, uh, Charles Brooks, uh, a whole variety. And as I say, all all sorts of different nationalities. So I, oh yes, um, yes, what's she there? Luba. Luba, Alexandra. She yeah, she's Luba Estes yeah, now. Yeah. But Luba, Alexandra Skvorzov, and yeah. she's now Luba Estes. And so she also gave you her account. Uh, we, we got her account from the Hong Kong Heritage Project. Yeah. So this project is a, on the one hand, of course, is a collection of many different sources. And on the other hand, it is a really a good platform to, to share with others some of the primary and secondary sources gathered by different organizations over the years. So on the one hand, when we show them uh, the sources, we will put the link or to the sources uh, at below and telling people to visit those websites or those sources for more information. So yeah, it really really is a tool to connect uh, people with different experience, yeah. So Luba was, uh, or is, uh, originally white Russian? 
Yes. Yeah, and she was stateless here. We, we have several stateless account, uh, people's accounts here, and we also have, uh, for example, free French, and then we have more Indians and so on. Later on, we plan to have more, for example, Eurasians, Marconis, and so on. Uh, Brian Edgar provided us with, oh, Brian several, Edgar, yeah. Yeah, with several stories of Eurasians that are extremely interesting because he selected some of the young people, uh, the children's stories, uh, non-combatants, and Tony, of course, contributed uh, more than half of these stories. Many of them are the servicemen, but not all of them, because they came from a very diverse background. And I, I myself wrote uh, several Japanese and Indian stories as well, in order to really give and, and local Chinese perspectives. Some of them are uh, locally enlisted personnel. So uh, Hong Kong sappers, Hong Kong gunners, and some of them survived the war and, and they talked about their experiences, mostly in Chinese. So this time it's, it's really a good way to connect different accounts. The, the more different stories you learn about, the more tolerant of difference you are. The idea is to highlight the diversity so that an event like a war as supposedly there is a clear firing line between the two sides but our intention is to show that there is so much gray area in it and of course there were very bad people several japanese war criminals accounts are also included they, they were killed in the war they were trialed by the, the war crime trial and they were some of them were later executed and some of them committed suicide and you have those people but at the same time you also have you have different kinds of humanitarian works, you have grave bravery being, being shown and so on. So all these different stories will, will really help us to see this battle, not just a very clear event between us and the enemy. My thanks to Dr. Kwong Chi Man, Assistant Professor of History at Baptist University. If you'd like to investigate this superb interactive map, then just type the title into Google and it will show up. So that's Battle of Hong Kong, 1941, a spatial history project. I'll be back with Kwong Chi Man next week talking about some of the people's accounts on the map, including Japanese military. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Mm -hmm.